Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Jackie Mitchell. This is where we pick the best brains in the business world and you, the listener, feel like you are eavesdropping on a really interesting coffee conversation to give you and your business the inside edge. We take a look into the business mindsets of leaders and brands and probe into how they think, feel, learn, manage teams and themselves. We love sharing the knowledge and serve brain food to keep your business mind healthy. To continue the conversation, you can connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. So while our first guest settles in, orders their coffee, grab yourself one and we'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Taking Care of Business. As workplace demands continue to increase, we are searching for ways to hack your day, streamline our, streamline our approach and boost our communication to start leading in a more effective and efficient way. Our next guest has helped thousands of leaders around the world implement fast-tracked strategies that improve results. Leadership Pathfinder, Scott Stein, welcome to the show. Yes, thanks, Jackie. Great to be here. I love the term leadership pathfinder. How did you come up with that? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting one. Um, my, You can tell I have a bit of an accent. Um, I actually grew up in America, and I've been in Australia 22 years, but my heritage back in America is Cherokee. Oh. So I, my great-grandmother was a full-blooded Cherokee medicine woman, and um, she married outside the tribe and broke the bloodline, so none of it was passed on. But I've always been drawn to the bush, and um, I've studied with people the ways of the Apache and Native Americans and things like that. So pathfinding is a big part of what I do, kind of looking at that ancient wisdom. And um, the leadership side is kind of the space that I've operated in for over the last 20 years, um, back, back in, in fact, longer than that, back in America and in Australia. But, yeah, it's a bit of a blend of the two. Yeah, well, I'm glad I asked that question. And also, it's a nice story. And, and you know, our, our brains love stories. It helps us make sense of the world around us. But I'm interested in your uh, leadership hacks. And uh, you said that leadership hacks are shortcuts. So where does a leader start? Like, what are some of the shortcuts leaders should be looking for? Yeah, I think that there's a whole range. And that's what I found when I was researching the book and putting it together and even from what I heard across either small business owners or middle-level managers or even CEOs, they were all saying the same thing. They were saying, we just don't have enough time to get the things done that we have on our plate. Um, and, and I need faster ways to do it. And, and I think that's what leadership hacks do. It, it allows them to find a shortcut, a fast-track process to get things done in less time. And when I started researching it, what I found is there's kind of three different groups of hacks that leaders could use. One is things that they can do themselves to hack their own time, their own activity, and their own focus. Um, the other group of, of hacks are kind of hacks they can do one-on-one. -on -one. So if they have direct reports to a staff, how do they hack their approach so they actually get a connection quicker and get them to do things faster in less time? And then the other one is if you're a leader or a manager, you normally have a team of people, either a department or an organization. There's also some team hacks, some specific things that they can do to kind of mobilize a team to kind of hack their approach with them. So they really fall into those three broad categories. 
Yeah, now the, the book was great and I should mention it's called Leadership Hacks, Clever Shortcuts to Boost Your Impact and Results. And one of the areas in it that, that grabbed my attention was the concept of attention because I personally believe that it's the most undervalued resource we have. Now the enemy of attention is distraction and you talk about distractions slowing you down. So what are some of the distractions that do slow leaders down? Yeah, and I think you you hit the nail on the head, Jackie. Everybody's distracted, you know, and and which means we don't get productive. We don't get the things done that we need to. Um, Udemy did a report, an in-depth study in 2018, and what they found is 69% of all full-time employees are distracted at work, right? They're just saying there's too many things going on. So what I found is there's really five main distractions that leaders or managers need to be aware of. Um, The first one is about lack of energy. If we're going too fast and we're not taking time to recharge our batteries, we start to slow down. Our mental processes get slower and we don't have that spring in our step that we used to. And that's one of the biggest distractions that I'm Mm -hmm. finding right now. And it doesn't matter what industry it's in. People just not taking the time to look after themselves, uh, get the sleep they need, eat the right way, do the diet, the exercise, so they do have the energy to perform. That's probably the biggest distraction that I've noticed. Yeah, sleep is critical. And, a, and I, I must admit, Scott, I, I get a bit annoyed or actually I'll probably get upset when I see things, you know, hashtag sleep is for the week and, and that, you know, and it's almost like a badge of honour that I only need three or four hours sleep a night where it's it's actually the opposite. The more sleep or good quality sleep you get, the better you're going to perform, the better, the better you're going to be at everything. Yeah, and what I also find is, again, we as human beings have an amazing ability to kind of spring back. And, and we can, and I know of leaders that have had to, you know, burn the midnight oil, don't get a lot of sleep. The thing is, you can't maintain it. Mm. And that's the thing that I think people are getting wrong. They're not going, all right, I had to push hard for a week. And then they're not going, all right, what am I going to do to make up for it? What am I going to do to make sure that I don't fall into this pattern? And then you throw all the other distractions in there around mindset and the biological need to be busy. That's another thing. You know, people just keep clicking their inbox and they're just checking for their mail, you know, and it's almost like I just need to fill this time. Um, and, and that really goes back to there was a study in the 1950s uh, by James Olds and Peter Milner. And what they did is they actually used rats as part of their experiment to stimulate the parts of the brain that release dopamine whenever the rat has pressed the lever or lever. And what they found, the rats got so addicted to this kind of hit of dopamine is they would press the lever up to 700 times per hour. And what the research is showing is we as humans are kind of the same. You know, we just want to check our inbox. We just want to double check it. Is it there? Is it not there? Which means we're getting distracted. We're not focusing on the things that we really should be focusing on. Yeah, so it's uh, it's we're really geared to tapping into our reward centre of our brain, aren't we? That we're getting these sort of sh- these these shots of uh, dopamine to, to keep us going. Now you mentioned uh, the speed of communication, which is a really big thing at the moment. That you know, it's business is getting faster and faster and faster every day. And you mentioned in the book some tech shortcuts to get faster results. Can you give us a little a little clue as to what that'd be? Yeah, I think there's two two really simple and really important ones that you can use when it comes to technology and specifically email. Um, one of them in emails is, is hacking your inbox. You know, what I'm finding is people aren't, aren't smart about how they could actually stay on top of their inbox and their email. And there's a really a simple four-step hack that I found that quite a few leaders use already, but they're just unconscious to it. Um, the first step is just um, 
scanning your email, right? Not reading through it, but just a quick scan. Mm. The second step is delete the things that aren't relevant. Don't even leave them there. Get rid of them straight away. The third one is then go back and sort the ones that are important. And again, if you're using Gmail or Microsoft Outlook, you can actually set it up so it automatically sorts them by the people you know anyway. And then, of course, the fourth step is respond. So what, what I'm finding is it's a simple little hack. If people were to organize themselves with their inbox, it makes it a lot easier for them to stay on top of it. Right. So that, that's one of those. The other one is about sending emails. And, geez, um, you know, if you look at all the emails that were sent, uh, we're bombarded. We mm. get more and more emails every day. And the challenge is, you know, I'm going to send something out. Am I just adding to the mass chaos and overcommunication? Or can I make it easy and clear for the person that's receiving my email to do something with it? So a couple of hacks on sending emails. Uh, one is make sure that you tailor the subject line, right? Yeah. Make it relevant. Make it clear on what you want them to do. You know, make your message link clear. Use visual texture in your email. So don't just type, a, you know, bang out a flat email with just normal text. Put bold in it, underline it, put bullets, make it visually pop. And the other thing that's really important is let them know what you want them to do with the email. So here's what I mean by that. Either there's really five outcomes. If you ever send an email, there's five things that you normally want that person to do. One of them is just FYI, I need you to be aware of this information. The other one is I need you to gather some information or provide some details to me. Um, the third one is we need to make a decision. The fourth one is, I need you to take action on this. And the fifth one is, we need to meet. So even putting one of those five specific outcomes in an email that you send in the subject line or at the very beginning, that gives people context so they know what they could do with that email that you're sending to them. And what people do is they appreciate that. Yeah, oh, they're, they're great pearls of wisdom. Now, Scott, I always like to ask guests, if someone was coming to you looking at starting a business and there's a real growth in entrepreneurs and startups and people giving it a go, which I think is great, but a lot of are going in blindfolded. If they came to you and said, Scott, could you give me a tip on what I should be focusing on or a tip of what I should do with starting a business? What pearl of wisdom would you share? Yeah, geez, there's a lot of them. That's, yeah, I that's know. Big I'm asking that's for really one. Big one. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think it's be clear on what you want. Uh, be really clear on what you want. I, I think having a business and starting a business is an amazing experience. Um, and what I also think is a lot of people go into it quite um, naive, so they're not really clear what they want to get out of it. So I always ask, well, all right, if you're going to start this business, why? You know, what do you want it to offer to you in the next three to five years? Is it you, it's an income? Is it it's a passion? Is it you want to have the time so you can go to your children's school and not actually be doing the daily grind in an office somewhere? You know, what, what is it that's really driving you? And if it's more than one of those, even better. But it's also about, all right, how are you going to make that happen and put it in place so you can make a living and not lose sense of who you are as well? Yeah, oh, see, that is, that's gold. I love it. Scott Stein, your new book, Leadership Hacks, Clever Shortcuts to Boost Your Impact and Results is available wherever you buy books. And I have read most of it. I can't lie and so I've read back to back, but I've, um, I'm going to continue reading it and I really enjoy it. And there's some really useful 
practical tips of, uh, of some shortcuts. And we're all looking for that now as uh, we're all seem to be getting less and less time. <laughs> Absolutely. Scott Stein, thank you again for your valuable time today. And I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jackie. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. You're listening to Taking Care of Business exclusively here on Ardo PFM and podcast. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Taking Care of Business. Our next guest is a keynote speaker and advisor on new ways of working. It's a real big theme at the moment. She helps businesses think and work in ways that are more productive, collaborative, creative and effective. Lots of ifs in there. She's the author of Ish, The Problem with Our Pursuit for perfection and the life-changing practice of good enough and it was the title of that book that attracted me to talk to our next guest because it is certainly a common thread about this pursuit of perfection and the the downsides uh, downsides of it so I'd like to welcome please Lynn Kazali hello Hello. Hi, Hello. Really well, thank you. But before I start on this pursuit of for perfection, which was really attractive to me because it is a common thread, Mm. those listening would go, Lynn Kazali, Kazali, up there, Kazali, is there a connection? Yes, yeah, it's quite a famous name. I probably get asked that, you know, every day. Yeah, well, that's right. It'd be like if your surname was Barassi. It's an unusual name in a way. So what's the connection with Up There Kazali, the very famous song? Yeah, the famous song, which and the song is after the famous footballer Roy Kazali, mm-hmm. and so he played last century. Now he played for like St Kilda and the Hawks and South Melbourne then the Swans, and was also coach. And he's my great great uncle. Oh, so wow! You could work that out in your own family. You know, think of your great granddad's brother. Yeah, right. Fantastic. Yeah. And so, who do you follow now? <laughs> Oh, look, I, I sort of share my football love around. But I did grow up in the sort of the Moorabbin area, so that's where the Saints, you know, were drawing all their players from in the early days. Right. So I got pretty attached to them, I think. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's it's great to have that legacy and the heritage, particularly with such a it's a cool name. I mean, it you is. know, it's yeah, just uh, yeah. it's it's almost that the Hollywood producers would have given it to you if you didn't have it naturally. So, yeah, so yeah. It's, it's a yeah, it's a name to be proud of. Yeah, yeah well, definitely. I suppose uh, is, is it only in Victoria, or do other people around Australia know of it? Oh, predominantly Victoria, but yeah. there's also um, some of the Kazali, uh up in Cairns. You know, there's the stadium and there's the social club and the same in Darwin. So oh, okay. it's certainly spreading around. And I think I think uh, Roy Kazali was sort of inducted into the, the Swans Hall of Fame. So now a lot more Sydney soders are, are across it too. Oh, okay, That's great. Pretty. Yeah, I it think it's is. Well, it's funny, my name being Mitchell, it's no connection mm. with, but my dad actually played for Essendon. So ah. there's, a, there's a bit of a connection there, but of course, yeah. no, no one ever asks me that because it's Mitchell. It's like Smith, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah, there, yeah. there you go, something in common. But let's talk about this drive for perfection, yeah. uh, which, which uh, there's, there is a bit of a parallel there with elite sports people because they have this issue, but the elite business people also have this issue, but not even elite. The average business person, and it's so misguided. Uh, mm. So what, what drew you to writing about this pursuit of perfection? Well, I'm, a, I'm probably a reformed perfectionist now. I was going to say I'm a perfectionist. <laughs> I was. And a, a combination of a couple of things, I, I did some work with some agile software development teams. So I started to see how they were willing to put 
software and apps and things out there into the public use and they weren't finished. You know, they were just in early stages. But what they were able to do was test their initial work to see how well it was received. And I was like, hey, I like this idea. Um, and then I also did some um, performance with Impro, uh, Impro Melbourne some years ago. And so it's been a bit of a collision of both of these things that you can make stuff up like improvisation, and it's actually pretty good. And then in software development, you could put stuff out there and it's not fully formed or not fully finished, and it's pretty good. So the idea of good enough um, and, and, and that we can go for good enough, go for somewhat, and that's what ish means, sort of near enough, good enough. N- near enough is good enough. Mm. Yeah, many, okay. Many, many things. Yeah, I, I really like that. So where does the line look? I'm sure it's blurry, but maybe not. Maybe you've got it clear. But where is the line between excellence and high standards and perfection? Well, all of these things are, are unknown to us until we do define them. So, you know, lots of industries work in ways where they have to reach particular standards. You know, you think of food handling and engineering and construction and healthcare. Uh, And so they have certain standards they have to reach. But when we're going for perfection, it's usually something that we conjure up in our mind. And so it's a mental image and we haven't actually defined what the standard is. And that's why going for perfection is so, you know, draining in a way because they just keep going and going and going and there's no... There's no sign of when we're going to stop because we don't know what the standard is. Oh, okay. So then we reach what we think is perfection. Then when we get there, we go, hang on, it's not perfect. And you just keep going. Yeah. So and then you don't, you don't feel good about it. And mm. so there's this terrible trap or cycle of I'm going for perfection. I can't get there. I still feel crap about it. Mm. So I must try harder next time. And so this cycle continues and in fact it's better for us to say you know what forget perfect just go for something that's functional and good enough and put it out there and test it just like the software developers see how it goes yeah, that's a and really then good... and then work in iterations but see if we can improve it over time now in uh in your book uh you talked about you had uh some research it was some mm. according to some further research 41,000 subjects mm. uh were uh, researched by some PhD researchers Thomas Curran and Andrew Hill mm. and they found that perfectionism is on the rise why Yes Yeah look I, I think it's driven by you know our our competitive world you know things are more um I won't say dramatic, but things can be a little bit more, um, there can be more pressure on us to do well. But I'm certain it's also this the idea of social media, you know, and, and just access to the internet. So it's much easier for us, say, to gather lots more information. So perfectionists are also known as maximizers. They keep gathering information. They're not sort of satisfied. So... It's, a, it's quite easy to keep looking and keep searching and keep gathering information um, just, you know, on our mobile devices. But perfectionism also involves often comparison. So it's also quite easy to compare ourselves with others when you look at social media and think, oh, I'm not doing as well as I hoped I would or I expected to or I'm not doing as well as them. So it, it happens, perfectionism is happening anyway, but the world is kind of getting more competitive and then you've got some of these social media and information pressures as well. 
Yeah, so I know uh, with Facebook they have uh, a philosophy in their offices about failing quickly, mm. um, and uh, and it's which which is around that close enough is good enough almost like to actually just say come on hurry up if you're going to make a mistake make it fast mm. just do it and then move on uh which is some benefits to that i can also see some downsides to it but it's interesting that it's been driven by the tech sector that close enough is good enough i think that's a really nice message it's a shame that they're not great communicators that it's not <laughs> it's not getting out for enough but um yeah well that's one of the, the sectors that i've worked in so i've been observing over a number of years how they do work it, it might not be fail but it's test test mm. early and test often rather than fail fast i think because what mm. no perfectionist wants to fail like no. that word doesn't it doesn't even come into their vocabulary that's why they work so hard yeah right. so if we look at it more as to try testing things put an experiment out there and see how it goes and get some valuable insights then that can help you refine what you're working on yeah, well, it's funny you said that because I'm always a big fan of pilots and testing. Mm, but I, fi- I find a resistance from entrepreneurs, startups, small business owners who have this sense that it's going to take too long, it's going to take too long. I haven't got mm. time to do the testing. And they mm. just want to go fly straight into it and try and it's, – it's, it's a real challenge. Have you found that in your experience? Yeah, I think there's that, that path of, oh, I'm going to keep working on this until it's finished. And I, I think, well, what if it's a bit wrong? Or what if it's not, you know, what if it's incorrect at the moment? You're now not going to know until you've done a heap more of now wasteful work. Mm. So why don't you do a bit of work, what we call an increment of work, test it, get some feedback to see is this work, is this going to work? Do people like it? Has it got leaks? Uh, you know, it could be the first version of a website or it could be a book or it could be uh, a workshop or some consulting and then once you've got some feedback on it, then you know you can keep, uh, you get that validation and, and I guess course correction. And the course corrections are a lot smaller now and less wasteful than if you keep doing, uh, trying to go for higher and higher quality. Yeah, t- uh, great advice. Now, mm. you mentioned in the book as well three dangers to be aware of uh, and the three main ways entrepreneurs let perfectionism, perfectionism hinder their efforts. What are those three ways? Oh, gee, I didn't know it was going to be a quiz. Oh, well, one Gosh. was all talk. This is, this is in your book. Oh, does it re- remember? Do you remember? <laughs> I've put you on the spot now. I'm sorry, yeah, let's Lynn. Put our guest on the spot and see if she remembers her content. See if you remember your book. And put another iteration out. Yeah, yeah. So you know what? I'll, I'll I'll give you some prompts. The first one is all talk. Yeah, yeah. Does so that ring like bells? Procrastinating. So you you oh, keep blabbing on about great yes. ideas that you've got, but you don't actually ever put them into practice. Yes, that yeah. that would be, uh, in my experience, number one. People not starting. Yes. Because yeah. they're procrastinating and stuffing yes. around, and it's yeah. just like, yeah. come on. And that incremental start is really key. I think. Exactly. Just start with a little something, a little a little slice of of work. Yeah, and then then the other is the opposite, is not stopping, which you've already mentioned as well. Yeah, so that's the perfectionism of not knowing when's the end of this task or activity or project. And I think lots of us have kind of, you know, embarked on a project, whether it's a a bathroom renovation or it's um, some creative project for for our kids, that uh, 
we don't know where to stop and we just keep going and going and going because it's not yet reached that image that we had in our mind of, of perfect. Yeah, so uh, you mentioned the good old famous Pareto principle of the 80-20 mm. rule. Yeah. Uh, so tell us what you mean by that, how, how to use it. Yeah, so Vilfredo Pareto noticed in Italy that um, 80% of the land was owned by just uh, 20% of people. Mm. Um, so the same thing applies to uh, work effort, that you only need to put a little bit of effort in, 20%, and you can get a massive 80% return on your effort. Um, but that also means that you can probably be wasting 80% of your time because all it's delivering is a mere 20% of results. So choose the better value tasks, start working on them and uh, you only need to do about 20% effort and you'll get an incredible result. Lynn, does perfectionism come in different flavours or is it just one one size fits all? Very different flavours. Um, so there's perfectionism where we have high standards for ourselves, so self-oriented perfectionism. Mm. There's perfectionism where we think society holds high standards for us yeah. and then the third type is where we have high standards for others and they're all on the rise uh, particularly mm-hmm. that middle one where we think society expects more of us and and it's not true you know this is this is the the fallacy that we're like slaving away thinking that uh, higher standards and higher quality is expected of it and it actually isn't we can we can afford to relax the pressure and most of the time, people don't notice. Yeah, amazing. Relax the pressure. I like that. Yeah. What a, a nice way to finish up. <laughs> Lynn Kazali, thank you very much for your valuable time today. Your book, Ish, The Problem with Our Pursuit for Perfection and the Life-Changing Practice of Good Enough. And I assume it's everywhere you can buy a book. You can get that. And Yeah, and if it's not, ask for it. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. You can go to Lynn Kazali, easy to spell, uh, dot com. Uh, yeah. and, uh, cool. and what's your favourite social media platform? Um, look, I'm on, on all of them at the moment, but I'm probably a little bit more on LinkedIn at the moment. Okay. Well, you can link up with Lynn Kazali on LinkedIn and find out uh, more of her work. It's certainly a fascinating area. The fact that it's on the rise, Lynn, it shows mm. that... Uh, reading your book will put if, if you know a perfectionist buy them Lynn's book give them yeah, that yeah that's for a the great birthday. idea yeah. so if you get given a few copies you know hint hint <laughs> <laughs> I like it very much Lynn Kazali always a delight thank you I wish you continued success up there thank Lynn Kazali and uh, <laughs> we look forward to our next encounter thank you so much for uh, sharing your knowledge insights right here on Taking Care of Business we were right back after this Welcome back. Our next guest has spent his career in the business of people. It's always a good place to start. From his early days in event management, recruiting and mobilising large volunteer teams for community events, he has navigated the challenge of leading at scale. He is a trainer, mentor and speaker to leaders and teams. I'd like to welcome to the show Shane Hatton. Thanks so much. Great to be having a conversation with you. Always good to have conversation with people like you, Shane. Your new book, you've just released a book called Lead the Room, Communicate a Message that Counts in Moments that Matter. Why did you choose leadership as your theme? Yeah, I think when leaders get better, I think we all know that the people around them get better, their teams get better. So I think if we pick a small group of people that lead and we help them to lead better, then I think we actually help a lot more people in the process of it. 
Okay, so you mentioned communicate a message that counts in moments that matter. What are some of those moments that matter? Uh, there's so many moments. I think one of the at the essence of the book when I was writing, what we eventually land on this idea is there really is no unimportant moment to speak. Mm. I think every moment that we have that's an opportunity to speak to a group of people ultimately is an opportunity to lead people. And I think the essence of it is that, hey, there is no unimportant moment. Um, every moment matters. Yeah, and being consistent, I'd imagine, would also be important. Yeah, being consistent. Yeah, consistent in what we're saying, mm. but also consistent in who we are. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, because you never know, that one person, you could be speaking to, you know, a handful of people and one person might just have that aha moment, but you might be speaking to 10,000 people and no one has it. So you shouldn't always go by numbers. Yeah, I, oh, absolutely. I think I always encourage people to speak beyond the room and to think that they're always speaking beyond the room because every person that's sitting maybe physically in front of you is representing a team, an organisation, a circle of peers, of friends, of family. Uh, those people represent so many more people. Mm. And so, yeah, we're speaking to much more than just the people in front of us every time. Yeah, well, that's the premise of how social media works, isn't it? So that's how we work as people. And and if more business people actually thought about that a bit more deeply, to mm. think that what message are you communicating and is it a message that's simple enough to then be repeated again without it losing its its uh, its theme, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, everything we say is ultimately heard by somebody, overheard by somebody else, shared with those people and then amplified to the rest of the world. And so I always encourage people, if, if you're going to say something, you need to be prepared for it to be amplified to the world. And if you're not, I'd definitely consider worth, whether it's worth saying. Yeah, okay. Now, uh, I noticed you've got three big obsessions, so I'm just going to touch on those. Uh, And the first one I particularly like, positioning. Tell us a little bit more what you mean by that. Yeah, I think this idea of positioning is, I think the world of leadership communication has changed, especially, I think you touched on it with the idea of social media, in the sense that at any given moment, something we say now can be blown up and shared with the world. I mean, whether you're, you're starting a business and you think, well, you know, I've only got a few connections right now, but those people are connected to somebody who's connected to somebody else. And so there's potential for something we say now to really influence far beyond our own circle or our own network. And so I think positioning is really about how people place us in their mind. And so I often ask people is, you know, how would people place you in their mind? And the better question is, is that how you want to be placed? And if not, what can you do to change that? What can you do to shift that? Yeah, which is all related back to the power of the personal brand, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, I often think personal brand is a part of uh, your positioning. I think it runs a whole lot deeper than that. I think there's behind the scenes in terms of who you are, your character, um, which then gets exposed publicly and people see it as your credibility. Um, there's also your own narrative, which is the things that you say about yourself, but then that becomes your reputation, which is what other people would say about you. Mm. Yeah, and it's sort of trying to figure out which piece of real estate you want to own in your stakeholder's mind, I suppose, or customer's mind. And uh, you could have your own narrative, but if it's the same narrative as all your competitors are saying, then it's something worth considering that maybe you need to find a new a new gap to fill. Yeah, I mean, Patty McCord, um, who was the people, chief people officer at Netflix, she said if people aren't informed by you, 
They'll probably be misinformed by somebody else. And I think it's just about deciding, okay, well, what's that, that piece of real estate? What's that place that I want to own? And what can I do to be um, reinforcing that and making decisions that kind of align with that? Mm, yeah. Now, your second obsession is messaging. Really, yeah. really important. Tell me about that obsession. Yeah, I think the big difference here is is the difference between just saying something and having something valuable to say. Uh, messaging, I think, uh, as you know, is this, this piece of going, do I have something that's valuable uh, to say? And then how do I say that in a way that actually cuts through? Because, I mean, we have so much access to information. We've got more access to information in, in the palm of our hand than we've ever had before. And so I think it's becoming more and more challenging to make sure that when we have a message that cuts through all of that noise and actually resonates and sticks to the people that we're communicating to. Yeah, that's really good. Now your third one, developing, um, getting better at thinking or investing in yourself. This is a real theme at the moment and a great theme. Uh, Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, I think we we always need to be asking ourselves, well, how could I get better at what what I'm doing here? Uh, I think it's a piece of a much bigger puzzle. Obviously, we need to make sure people are positioned well. Yes, we need to have something to say, but we also need to make sure that we're out there just you know, getting our feet on the ground and running it out and practicing it and developing it, just like the way we learn to play a guitar, we learn to drive a golf ball. Anything we do takes time, investment and practice. And I think it's, it would be um, wrong to assume that the person who's you know, driving a dead straight golf ball or the person who's leaping through the air has done that without some kind of investment time and practice mm-hmm. and probably a bunch of failure along the way as well. Uh, so I think we, we, we tend to, we need to get better at how we fail as well as how we uh, invest in ourselves. Yeah, so how, how could you leverage your influence? To leverage your influence? Yeah, so what, yeah. what sort of tools could you use to leverage your influence? Yeah, I think once you've decided, well, how is it that I want to be known... Um, and, and you've really decided, yeah, this is the narrative that I want to create for myself. I mean, there's, 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 it's now then just to ask the question, what can I do with that? So, I mean, there's ways that you can write regularly on that subject matter. Um, you can share your ideas with the world. I think one of the challenges, we, we have really great ideas and we're really great subject matter experts, but we often don't share that and contribute that with other, uh, to the world. And so it's finding what are some avenues I can communicate with that, whether it's writing LinkedIn articles, whether it's writing through your own website, whether it's just generating a list of people, um, a bit of a tribe and a bit of a community that you can share those ideas with. Um, the important thing is just to start getting those ideas out into the world and having the confidence to, to publish and share those ideas. Yeah, now I noticed uh, in your bio it said that you had a fear of public speaking. Is that right? Yeah, it's quite ironic, really, when you think about it, that the whole book is, is based around this. And I think a big uh, reason as to why I wrote the book is I often find people have two challenges around public speaking. The first one is usually this, this sense of um, confidence, which is, you know, I'm not really sure if I can do it. Um, or the other one is really that sense of clarity, which is you know, I've got some ideas, I just don't know how to share them. And I've honestly found the best way to address that is the confidence piece is just pure practice, giving people the chance to do something. Um, and to deal with the clarity issues, just giving people a process or a framework that can help them, uh, almost like a bit of scaffolding or a set of training wheels around the ideas. But the book for me is really just a, a, a set of um, training wheels or scaffolding or a bit of a process for people that can follow uh, to hopefully just to give them a chance to get out there and practice more. So firstly, how did you know that you had a fear of public speaking? What were the clues yeah, I think any time somebody mentioned um, the opportunity to come and stand in front of a group of people and I felt like I was going to throw up, that's usually a pretty good sign. Okay, yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> feeling sick in your stomach, um, 
and and often there's the you know the often symptoms we see you know you're shaking hands, you're shaking voice, you get a bit sweaty, um, feeling a bit anxious around even just the idea of getting up to speak. I think we can learn um, that those are actually very normal um, symptoms over time, but they're probably a good indicator that something is is triggering some kind of fight or flight response for you. Yeah, and so what did you do to get over it? Yeah, I think the first thing is you've got to be able to uh, recognise what's actually taking place. Um, so anytime you're feeling, you know, sick in your stomach or your hands are shaking, that's actually a very normal threat response and it's basically protected us and kept us safe for a long time. And so when we recognise what's actually taking place, uh, we don't read into the wrong thing. So we're not thinking that, you know, it's about anxiety or nerves. We're just going, okay, where am I feeling threatened right now? And it's probably as a result of some internal conversation we're having with ourselves. And maybe the conversation was, you can't make a mistake, don't stuff this up. And so we need to get control over that conversation, begin to reframe that in a way that's a bit more helpful for you. Um, so choosing some, to reframe some of those internal conversations. And then ultimately, the, the next step is just to refocus our attention on, uh, on the people of the, in the room that we're speaking to. Um, it often tends to pull our focus very internal. And I think one of the great ways to overcome that is to focus our, uh, our attention out. Yeah, that's a really good tip. What's uh, what's one of the self-talk lines that you give yourself now, Shane? Just before you're about to speak to any size group, is there a is there a uh, a mantra or a phrase yeah. that you goes through your head? Yeah, I, I think there's lots of conversations that I tended to have internally that were very fixed. Um, beliefs, which is, you know, you can't make a mistake, you can't stuff this up, you know, it has to be perfect. I think what I've learned now is is people are actually okay and they forgive you for being imperfect. Um, they often won't forgive you for being unprepared, mm. but they will forgive you for being imperfect. So now before I'm getting up and saying to myself, you know what, if you make a mistake, that's okay, you're human, um, just keep moving forward. And, and I honestly find that when they're, they're not those fixed beliefs, it actually makes it a lot easier to, to stand up and speak. Yeah, one of my techniques is to make fun of myself. I think, well, if I do that first and get in before anyone else can. <laughs> it's a bit common, much more common. But, but, yeah, it's certainly a very a very common, much more common issue. And people in business have to speak, whether you, you're you not always speaking in conferences or seminars, but you might be speaking mm. to your team, you might be going for a job interview, you might be pitching for business. Uh, yeah. it, there's lots of speaking to be done in business. So... I just wish that somehow we could practice that a bit more. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the thing is, often people who are very entrepreneurial, they're starting businesses or they, they've got great ideas and they need to share those ideas with the world. It can be that one thing that stands in the way of a really great idea getting out into the world. And yeah, I definitely think we need to, we need to move past it. Well, it's funny. It's one of my theories, one of them, about social media. It's like you can get your ideas and, and thoughts heard without having to get up and speak publicly. Yeah. And, and the challenge then becomes that there's just so much noise in that yes, space. Yes, right. That yeah. it, it makes it harder and harder to get your idea to cut through. Exactly right. So go back to practicing mm-hmm. your public speaking that's what it always comes back to anyway shane hatton thank you so much for your precious time today your new book lead the room communicate a message that counts in moments that matter people can find that book on your website shanehatton.com and uh, i believe you hang around linkedin and twitter as well i certainly do wonderful thank you again thanks so much That's the end of another stimulating show. We hope you've enjoyed eavesdropping on our conversation, picked up some tips, learned something new, or at the very least feel inspired. 
If you just joined us, you've missed a lot, but the podcast will be available on my social media, Jackie Mitchell. Thank you to our worldly and thought-provoking guests. We look forward to your company next Friday. In the meantime, keep taking care of your business mindset.